tech is what will enable you to be able to do what you love. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we speak to Wincy Wong, Head of Services Workforce Technical Capability at NatWest and co-founder of the NatWest Girls Can Code Network. She is also a founding member of Tech She Can, a charity representing more than 230 corporates working together to increase the number of women in technology roles in the UK through education. So I think we thought that this week's episode was going to be a lovely companion piece to last week's episode with Beth and Kit from Tear Fund, where we again with Wincy discussed the importance of diversity of thought and perspective in leadership. Um, And we launched last week's episode on the day that the UK government started to fall apart. So um, it's a really good time to be talking about um, diversity in leadership because we've certainly seen a cast of thousands moving through the the cabinet in the last uh, 24, 48 hours. And we're recording this today on Thursday uh, when uh, Boris Johnson is about to resign. Um, and I'm not sure he can even even do that properly. So, yeah, interesting time to be putting out an episode of a leadership podcast about um, different ways of, of leading uh, change in organisations. Very interesting times. And, and just to point out that we, for any listeners out there, that we're recording on the morning of Thursday, 7th of July. Uh, and this uh, introduction is probably going to be out of date by the time we stop recording. Given the pace of news yesterday, uh, everything seems to be out of date as soon as you put it out there. I think there will, however, be some very big long term questions about leadership that I hope will arise uh, from everything that's that's happened, the constitutional crisis we're now in that has happened over the the last few weeks, but also perhaps in some ways was almost inevitable, given what we have seen here over the last the last year or so. And I do think there are some big questions to be answered about who we select for power, why we select them for power, and the assumptions we make about people from certain backgrounds and the the, the fitness to hold power. And of course, the accountability that there is for the office of prime minister as well. From what I can see, it's actually very hard to get rid of someone who is not performing in role and it shouldn't be this hard. If he was the CEO of the company and he wasn't delivering, then the board would have got rid of him a very long time ago. Yeah, I think his appraisal is probably, um, uh, could do much better. Um, <laughs> that's certainly if he was in in the corporate world, as you, right, you rightly say, he'd be, he'd be gone. And I think there's something weird, isn't there, that he seems to be approaching this in an almost um, presidential way where, you know, I have a mandate from the country. No, you don't. Um, your your party has uh, a mandate uh, from the country. We elect um, MPs. Your MPs work with you. You are their elected leader, not our elected leader. So I think it's um, it's it's certainly sort of him hanging on by his by his fingernails is a little bit um, annoying, um, and he yeah, doesn't even seem to be able to resign uh, properly. Um, interestingly enough, I was listening to um, Women's Hour this morning. I was listening to Six Music. We were having a conversation about about music and um, 
uh, our, our favourite um, bicep uh, being on the radio. And then uh, you said that you were listening to uh, Radio 4 and I thought I ought to be listening to Radio 4 as well. So I tuned into Women's Hour and um, one interesting interview that w- w- that came on and they didn't really talk about it um, in, in too much detail, but one, some, something to come out of one of the interviews was the amount of interest this organisation, so it was a women in, uh, a women's conservative um, organisation, the amount of interest they had had in the last 24, 48 hours from women. Um, there was a tweet yesterday as well. I don't know whether you saw that tweet. We'll have to dig it out. I can't remember, but it was basically um, somebody saying, women of uh, the UK get together, you know, we, we, um, we, we, we're organising school fates and we, we're kick-ass at it and we're doing all this stuff. And we're sitting at home and we're screaming at the radio and the TV saying we could do a better job here. And it seems to have a, had a knock-on effect for at least this political organisation that was saying the amount of inquiries from women who were saying, actually, I think I could do a better job here or we could do a better job here coming forwards and saying how do we get involved was, was, was really interesting. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting way of improving uh, diversity, isn't it? it? Get an older Tonian into the job who performs so poorly that he sets the bar so low that women who notoriously underestimate their capabilities to do a job, unlike men, and um, put themselves forward. So that is the <laughs> legacy that Horace leaves behind, then perhaps that has been a very good thing. <laughs> It's a great legacy, isn't it, for somebody that's worried that he's not going to have one. And I, I heard somebody also say, you know, he'll he'll be quite fearful this morning of his future. And I thought he'll be fine. Like, you know, there'll be a bit of fallout for a little while and he'll disappear off and he'll be back on Have I Got News For You before you can but before you can say Boris. And it's it's just a, a, a bit of a shame that it's it sort of got to this point where it's become I think uh, an embarrassment. Well, it's been an embarrassment for a long, long time, um, but it's a, a well, you know, global embarrassment as well. Um, somebody also said that President Putin uh, will be clapping his hands with glee this morning that that this is this is happening. This vacuum of power. Who's actually running the country at this precise moment? We've got members of the cabinet who are refusing to resign because they're so concerned that the job that they're actually doing at the moment, for example, in defence, is so crucial. Uh, that they, they 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 can't sort of leave their post. They can voice their opposition, but they they they're fundamentally sort of trying to to, to cling on and, and hold on. But it's it's just a complete mess, isn't it? It really is. I mean, we're in a very serious, very messy situation because if something went really wrong now, we are still in this really tense situation with the with Russia. Um, then who's going to make the decisions? Who's going to move quickly on it? I, I just don't know because everything is just in complete chaos and it doesn't feel like government anymore. This isn't government. It's been a parody of government for some time and we're all just babysitting. Yeah, I, I mentioned to my wife this morning that the the alarm bell should have rung. It, it, do you remember back in the when, the, um, when he was elected as mayor of London and there was almost a sort of a celebratory, yeah, we've got Boris. As, as we you know we've voted him in as mayor of london and it was a sort of a celebratory sort of isn't that hilarious and i never found that funny and then years later i think the the, the next thing it's all these this it's not not the policy it's the buffoonery it's the uh the appearance of the 2012 opening ceremony where you're sort of looking at the the, the rest of the world looking at us thinking well this is just a joke it's just a complete and utter joke and unfortunately that's the way it feels to me that it's unfolded over the past few months Anyway, 
you know it seems as you said i think it's going to be very very different um hopefully by the the next episode we we put out of the podcast everything will have changed again most likely and in fact no doubt based on what we've seen over um the last couple of hours this this morning things are inevitably going to change at pace uh, and like you say i think that who's in power who's holding power and who is accountable uh, is is a very serious matter especially when you get to very senior roles and I hope that the stories we've put out there in Beth and Kit's digital leaders job share episode and then Wincy's story that we're going to hear today as well inspire people to think differently about what power looks like and why we need to share it more widely and offer it to, to people from different backgrounds and design different ways for people to hold power too. Yeah, and I think that's true of so many of our 30-plus episodes now. We've looked at so many different aspects of, of leadership um, that it just shines a light on, on bad leadership. We've seen so many examples of people doing things differently, doing things well, doing things courageously, um, and it just it, it just doesn't have to be uh, the way that we're seeing now. It doesn't need to be that example that we follow. It can be the example of all these great people that we've had on the podcast. It really can be. And I think what has been really interesting about the last 48 hours or however long um, it feels, it really feels like 10 minutes, to be honest, uh, and also what's been going on in France with Emmanuel Macron, Mm. is that if we look at these two leaders who in many ways represent the, the establishment, I would argue, in their respective countries, the ways in which they are trying to hold power and exercise power I feel that they come from the very pre-pandemic ways of of leading. It's all about command and control. It's all about my way or or the highway. And as we've seen with with both of them, their supporter base is is eroding. And actually those ways of leading and governing, they they don't work anymore in this uh, new world. They really don't. Yeah, and, and new ways of, of 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 thinking. I know she's come under criticism in in, in New Zealand uh, for some of the, the the response to the pandemic, but just the the, the role that Jacinda Ardern played for that country completely and utterly different. A, a, a seismic shift compared to what we were seeing at the time from the US, from the UK, from the big uh, world powers. Um, interesting to see how that model. Um, could could sort of influence the way that we we do things here um but yeah time for for, for big change and and uh you know hopefully hopefully a, a reaction uh over the next few months as as we really do sort of say right enough is enough it's not just the, the cutting off the head it's really the whole system has to to change Absolutely. I I agree. Um, And I think there's some big questions about the constitution as well, but we really are pushing the boundaries of a digital leadership podcast if we think we can come (laughs) to that here. Anyway, now for our conversation with Wincy Wong, Head of Services, Workforce Technical Capability at NatWest and co-founder of the NatWest Girls Can Code Network. We are very excited to welcome Wincy Wong to the podcast today. She is Head of Services Workforce Technical Capability at NatWest. Wincy Wong uses her background at the leading edge of creative and disruptive innovation in the banking industry to break down barriers and transform and shape the diversity of the tech and data workforce. An international speaker and a digital evangelist, she is passionate about spearheading the growth of a diverse technology workforce 
as co-founder of the NatWest Girls Can Code Network and founding member of Tech She Can, a charity representing more than 230 corporates working together to increase the number of women in technology roles in the UK through education. She is also co-host of the NatWest Technically Speaking podcast series, which discusses current topics in the evolving world of tech. She also has a background working with the UK government, tapping into the huge unrealised economic potential of female entrepreneurs across the UK. And she's also been involved in growing new businesses recommended in Alison Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship. A serial entrepreneur herself, she has been featured in season two of BBC's My Million Pound Menu with host Fred Saru for her business running Burmese Supper Clubs and that's now available on Netflix globally. In 2019, she was named one of the top 100 most influential BME leaders in the UK tech by inclusive boards and the Financial Times. Having grown up in New York City, she spent the last more than 10 years across the pond in London, where she is passionate about making innovation useful for customers. Wincy, welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here today and really interested to dig into some of the work you're doing around transformation and digital skills and encouraging more women into the world of tech and growing their potential. Can you tell us a bit more about what that looks like for you day to day and and what your role involves and um, what you've got oversight of? Absolutely. So this is actually for me quite an exciting role. I am leading um, technical capability across our services area of the bank, which includes all the different digital technology areas. Um, What I am particularly responsible for is identifying what are the technical skills that we are looking at. So creating a skills taxonomy, um, also using that to manage our skills and create talent pipeline and retain talent. So in terms of talent pipeline, we talk about things um, that are traditionally under the banner of early careers, and that is technical apprentices, interns, software engineering grads. Um, And then we also are looking at career switchers and reskillers. And that's a a big part of what we're trying to grow here at the bank. Um, In terms of retaining talent, looking after our global technology academy, which provides learning paths and other types of learning across for all the staff, um, particularly our engineers who are looking for continuous learning, and also uh, Skill Bank, which is our proposition around how do we develop our people's skills through volunteering or supporting enterprises and charities and good causes around us. Because we as a bank, we really believe in our purpose and actually in order for us to thrive, we need to make sure the people, our communities around us, our businesses are also thriving. So this is kind of our way of being able to give back. And that's so interesting because it's a really holistic, really community-based way of doing business, but also the way you look at digital skills as, as well. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us a bit more about what's involved with the, the skills taxonomy? Because I think that's fascinating uh, and then also it'd be brilliant to hear a little bit about you talked about uh, career changes and people coming back into the workforce and how they can be part of of tech as well I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about both of those things 
So one of the things that we know is uh, in a lot of corporations and our bank included, traditionally we hire based on role profiles, so to speak, right? We create these roles and it's usually a, um, a lot of it is a one-to-one -one transaction, meaning that I'm running a team, I'm in technology, I'm looking for a specific type of software engineer. I go to my HR department and we go out to market and we recruit for that one software engineer that I need my team. But actually there are thousands of us in the bank who are all trying to do the exact same thing. And one of the things that we know that we need to understand is uh, hold on a second, we need to flip hiring on its head. The market has changed. There's uh, incredible demand for a lot of these types of roles, particularly technical and data roles. Um, those have always been around, but they have just fired up. And in fact, I saw a stat yesterday to say that by 2025, there will be 3 million uh, of these jobs across the UK, but actually only a small percentage uh, of them will be able to be filled by, for example, graduates. I think there's maybe uh, a couple, 100K, 125K or so that are maybe graduating <laughs> in that same year in order to be able to fulfill some of these roles. So we need, um, so there's a war on talent and, and there's also a whole load of things that the pandemic brought upon. People are um, definitely a lot more selective when they go to choose the, the type of role that they want to and the place they want to work for. So um, in, in terms of a skills taxonomy, what we want to do is very much identify what are the skills we're trying to hire a mass, you know, across the piece. So rather than focusing on that one manager who's looking for that one engineer, let's look at all the whole thousands. Let's look at all of them and to see what exactly are the skills that they are requesting to bring into the bank. And the reason that's really important is because that helps support us on a lot of things in terms of planning, for example, for the future. So um, to give us a foundation to say that, hey, you know, next year when we go through a budget cycle, for example, and I say, and I'm going to need, uh, based on my churn levels, based on all this, I'm gonna need a hundred engineers in this part of the bank. Um, not only will I be able to say I need a hundred engineers, I can say that I need a hundred engineers of which 50 have these kinds of skills, 40 have these kinds of skills, 10 have, you know, skill C, whatever. I mean, it's not as simple as that because <laughs> every role will have easily, you know, hundreds, hundreds or hundreds of skills. And it's kind of come up, bringing that down to kind of what are the top key core skills that we are looking for and using that to inform everything else. Then once we say that, then we say, okay, there's high demand, there's high churn, and there's lack of availability in market. This is the perfect storm. This is a way for us to actually change how we create that pipeline and bring people in. So one of the sources with which we're doing that is with reskilling program, a career switcher program. So we know that only 17% of the market of tech um, roles in the UK are being filled by women. And that is not enough, right? So if you have a lack of market and you know that 50% of the market just isn't going into tech, then that is obviously a population where we are very keen to help and support. Um, so we have, we've done some internal reskilling. We've also have some external partnerships. One of the partnerships we have is with Code First Girls, who is prolific in this area, um, in particular, bringing in female uh, coders. And through that sponsorship, you know, we, we've trained up, you know, over 
2,000 women how to code and intro to coding classes. And from there, we've been able to select the number to come into the bank. And actually, just for example, some I really want to bring this to life because um, it's not just about numbers and bringing heads in and, and doing work, but it's about these people and the changes in their life that it's brought about. So just last week, we were talking to um, someone who is a network software engineer now, and she was a stay-at-home mom librarian before that and 43 and during the pandemic she just kind of said well my very small world just all of a sudden felt a lot smaller that's what she said and and she found her way onto code first girls or onto coding um code first girls something clicked in her head and she made it all the way through and now she's a netwest software engineer and and what's even better, she is saying that, oh, she's bumping into people now that she hasn't seen in years because everyone's been in lockdown. And they're asking, oh, how was it? How are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm a NatWest software engineer now. And they're like, what? <laughs> but she's doing so well. And it's stories like this that are, are really kind of like um, warming for, for us. So what we found is that with these career switchers, not only is it that they are um they become software engineers and they're doing the work but actually they're very motivated they're they're high performers they also get up to speed they seem to get up to speed um on average you know i don't want to i'm generalizing here obviously everyone is different but they they are getting up to speed quickly and they do add a lot of new perspective into those jobs and what they bring is diversity as, as we very much talked about as well different ways of thinking because they come from different backgrounds. So we're not just talking about gender diversity here. We're also talking about different things like ethnicity, neurodiversity, you know, people who were uh, about 30% of them are eligible for um, free school meals. And actually 70, over 70% 70 of them are from underrepresented ethnicities. So we are all of a sudden bringing people who are completely different coming into the bag mingling with very traditional bank or computer or software engineering types um, who look very different. And actually, it's great. <laughs> it just really kind of just shakes things up a little bit. And, and actually, and it's been great to see uh, the teams who have really embraced this as well, providing that extra um, support, like management, uh, mentorship in order to support them because just because you've gone through a bootcamp of training doesn't mean you're a software engineer right away. You still need to practice. So having that embedding uh, in as part of the program has been really important as well. I love the way that you're tackling this because one of my massive frustrations with traditional recruitment and indeed skills development is that it's, it's very waterfall. It's very sort of one-to-one. -one. And of course you need that support and coaching and mentoring of people. But at the same time, we're in this digital skills crisis in the UK and that's not going to abate anytime soon. So why not look at it holistically and tackle the pipeline and look at how you can reach more people from different backgrounds and be creative about who you're going to reach and and that's why it's brilliant to hear about what you're doing. Yeah, and I was going to add to that the the you know the analogy that was always used in in my sort of corporate past was turning the tanker around, turning the oil tanker around. You know, the business needs to go in a new direction, or the business needs to shift its focus and go move in a, in a different direction. That's really hard to do. But rather than try and turn the boat around, why don't you just bring more passengers onto the boat who can add to the the, the story that you're you're trying to build? And I think that's a real 
testament to what you're you're trying to to do here is is bring those di- that diversity of thinking bring that diversity of background into uh, an environment that that um is not used to it that's how you change things perhaps not by sort of radical shifts in direction although it is quite radical to some of the people in the bank <laughs> yeah, yeah no of course of course and, and, yeah. you know, they're, they're, but, but, exactly. that, but that's the change isn't it that's the the catalyst is to put them side by side with with what you know with what you're trying to do and let them deal with it you know it's it's them them to deal with it you're doing the right thing it's them to deal with it I think this is um, a mistake a lot a lot of companies make who are earlier on in their um, diversity and inclusion journey, DEI journey. Um, I, I think they think that by having a head of diversity and inclusion, having a separate program, doing all these things, that that's that. Like that's what you need to do. Whereas really, you actually have to put commercial impact on what you do. You have to um, actually federate that to everyone so everyone plays a part in making sure that that happens um, because until you actually just start bringing people into the door and placing them next to them you know they 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 don't know how to do it right and and actually this also kind of um helps to build that pipeline into that future as well you know to hopefully for them to stay a bit longer to grow with us uh, and to, of course, uh, which they know, to also support the next generation because we are going to constantly go through cohorts. We just, before we started recording, we were just talking about Excel spreadsheets and, you know, learning, <laughs> learning how to use Excel spreadsheets and how that needed to be on a CV. Diversity isn't something you can put on a CV as a skill. That's not something you can you can teach, but it is a mindset. And I guess it's giving people the skills that they're going to need to open up to, to, to new mindsets, new ways of thinking. I guess yes. it's another way to, to look at the, the skills building that you're doing. It's to change uh, the perception within the organisation. And having so many people with these different perspectives, you've got transferable skills from other careers now joining the NatWest workforce, has the culture? I mean, ma- massively. I mean, I, I think it's just, um, it just depends on the team. I mean, everyone's different. They've all gone to, um, by the way, I, I wouldn't say that we hired a bunch of, you know, career switchers and reskillers and we put them in all into the same team. We've actually put them, kind of spread them all across all different types of tech teams. And uh, I would say that, it, I mean, they haven't been doing this for very long. So they are maybe uh, just about maybe 12 months into their journey now. And, um, but some of them are already, changing how those teams work they are they are adding value because they just look at things in a very different way um, a perfect example is in india we have um one lady who was a high performer in operations never even thought about software engineering didn't um, study it you know but she was a high performer she was talented and she um, took an opportunity to sign up for the program that we were running. She joined, she's now um, part of one of our web SDK teams and she is just absolutely thriving. <laughs> she's, she's also got a tremendous amount of, of that particular line manager has also given her a lot of extra support to make sure that she got, but as soon as she was up and running, she was starting to like 
pick up tickets, you know, deliver things. Not only that, she's also changing how they're looking at them because she has that operations background and she's very much about, well, how do you do things in that efficiency? <laughs> you know, they create more efficiencies than how we do and really kind of changing how they work. And they just all have really kind of like adopted her or absorbed her into that team. And she's adding so much value and it's really kind of changed the mindset. And uh, what I would say is what I'm seeing is that, um, uh, we have these uh, people boards and I presented at some of them just yesterday. And originally when the idea first came out, there was probably a lot more resistance to the idea, you know, to say that, oh, well, I mean, but if you gave me someone who's a reskiller, then um, they wouldn't know anything, you know, and I would still have to like hire someone else in to kind of cover for them to do the work while I spent all this time trying to train them up. And I, I don't really want someone who's like completely barefaced <laughs> with no experience. I want someone who is experienced and already knows the program and can, you know, be off and running without me having to develop, invest so much time. But what's changed now is that, oh my God, these people are so motivated <laughs> you know they bring a different energy into the group they're not just like um, for example a managed service worker or a temporary worker that you've hired to do a job and just leave they're people who this has been life-changing for them so they are committed they're doing a lot of self-learning on their own and, and you know and they said they're saying, look, it does take a lot of investment and time, but the reward you get is so much more because you have people who who want to do it. And, and that just makes such a big difference in terms of how they approach. And we're happy to kind of like now do a little bit more training. So it's not so. So that's kind of opened the doors a little bit more. So, you know, I'm slowly waiting. It's not long now, I think, before the floodgates start to go. <laughs> Which is exciting in itself, isn't it? Really making progress on that journey. And one of the things we talked about when we spoke a few weeks ago was how you support individuals when they make that transition. So your example of um, this amazing woman who's gone from being an absolute high flyer in operations to being a software engineer. We talked a few weeks ago about how you're going from perhaps being quite in a quite structured work environment to one where there's a lot of ambiguity. You're working to agile methodologies and all those sorts of things how do you support people in in making that transition because it's a a mindset shift and way of working shift as well isn't it a huge one so for another example i have is that someone who's who's actually absolutely brilliant he um started out as a relationship manager in a branch you know um so working our, our shop floor our version of a shop floor you know and um, and he's used to, you know, on a daily basis, he has to sell this many, you know, widgets or, or whatever, and, and he's targeted and, and his job is, you know, very straightforward in terms of what he needs to do. But it's very relationship space, is meeting his clients, his customers, all of that. Then all of a sudden, he's, you know, not only gone through this whole boot camp, this whole program, and is now a software engineer, I think, you know, where when they told him, this is what you have to deliver. Come back to me in two weeks. <laughs> and it just blew his mind. You know, he's just sitting there. He's like, what? What? Like, what do you mean two weeks? Like, how do I do that? Like, it actually literally he had to change how he thought and his mindset. And, and because it was that big a shift for him to think about. So what we 
or so we're very conscious of this. We provide, you know, at the bank, we provide a lot of um, mental health support in terms of giving them um, a place to go if they need to chat. We also ensure that, you know, there's a, uh, a collegiacy that happens between, you know, connecting all the cohorts, making sure there's a community that they can rely on, people who've been through the same thing, supporting each other. We also provide a lot of additional support, providing mentors, coaches, uh, technical mentors as well, very importantly, um, to bring take them along on that journey. And not saying we're perfect. We don't have all the answers, I would say, yeah. We're still learning in terms of how, how it works. But um, it, I would say that if anyone is looking to endeavor upon this journey, do not just think about the technical skills side of it. Please do not forget about how much coaching, how much embedding, how much mental health support actually that you need to provide um, for these people. And different people will need different levels of support depending on what they were doing before. So uh, some will need handholding throughout the whole process. Some won't need it at all. <laughs> you know, they'll just find what they were always meant to do and go flying is probably what I would say. Yeah, definitely. It's I think it's so important to have that because it's a big kind of life event, isn't it? When you're making that much of a uh, significant uh, uh, career change, effectively. Um, and speaking of career changes and digital skills, uh, we'd love to hear a bit more about TechSheCan. So TechSheCan charity is something very near and dear to my heart. So me and 17 other ladies, women in tech, all women in tech, were sitting around and saying, what's wrong why are there more women around us why are they all trying to poach us hire us for the same roles etc you know why isn't there more talent out there and actually all of us are trying to do things in our individual organizations instead of trying to do it individually within our organizations why don't we do something that changes the industry you know we can be the voice for the industry and that's how the section can charity started and that was um we we pulled together and we, we hosted loads of things and uh, Sheridan, Ash, who, who kind of led a lot of it from PwC as well. She was you know, absolute force and brought it together, got involved with DCMS, got involved with, you know, um, Institute of Coding, STEM Learning, uh, all the organizations. And one of the biggest gaps that we realized were actually around education. And um, because PwC had done a bit of research at the time where we started, where women of GCSE age were saying only 27% of them would consider career in tech, whereas 62% of the men would consider careers in tech. And out of that, only 3% of the ladies said they would put it as top choice as a career. And that to us was disturbing considering the, the, the talent, you know, challenges that, that we talked about earlier. So we very much um, decided to focus on education. I led um, education for the charity um, for, for a while before we handed it to a real professional educator, I would say, <laughs> Becky who's doing it now. And, and, and very much it was about, okay, well, what do, where do we wanna focus? And we wanted to focus, originally we started, we focused on the like 10 to 13 year old range because that's where we saw the biggest shift from 10 to 13 years old up to the, the 16, 17 year old range. Um, so we said, oh, we'll focus there. But then the pandemic happened, we decided to start these um, 30 minute 
short kind of um, lesson plans to teach people about careers in tech. And that was the difference about what we were offering versus uh, everything else in the market. We were only showcasing, we weren't trying to teach them Python or coding or any technical subject because there was so much out there already. And most people just didn't even know where to go in, in terms of that. But what they were, uh, what we did is we said, let's bring in role models. Let's bring in women who are working in tech or people who are working from all different walks of life who are working in tech at the moment to share their journeys and share their experiences. And actually, let's teach the kids about what we can do with tech. So, you know, if you're interested in sciences, for example, or climate change, then we did a tech for climate, you know, lesson. We did a tech for health, tech for food, tech for, you know, holidays even, you know, um, all the tech that goes into firework displays, etc. And all, all those things. And though that was when we started seeing this dramatic shift, you know, we um, overnight, I think we had uh, 10,000 people then all of a sudden joining into our, our weekly new lessons that we were launching. Um, and now we're, we're doing it monthly instead. And, um, and we have animated lessons as well. And we saw a market difference in the students, in, in their eyes, you know, in terms of what they thought tech was. I think I remember seeing like one child, she, she drew, um, oh, well, someone who works in tech, like before any of our lessons, she literally drew like this stick figure man in a brown suit with a pocket protector, calculator, glasses. And, and when we talked about atrophy, she said, oh, yeah, he sits in the basement somewhere in a dark room, has no friends. Um, and, you know, and he's just a bit awkward, you know, <laughs> it's like, that, that's literally what they drew. I was like, oh my God, this is like, uh, at this young age, they already have these kinds of stereotypes. And then, then after the, after the lesson plans that we did, we did trials um, across some um, uh, schools around the country. And after I remember like she drew like this little superhero lady. She pretty much drew herself wearing a superhero cape with, um, and she's like, I'm going to be a social media manager. <laughs> You know, and that was like such a, a big turnaround because I think um, I think that's what's missing in this whole formula. There aren't enough role models. Their teachers aren't technologists. Let's be honest. Their teachers are teachers um, who teach specific subjects. They don't actually the, the careers in tech are changing all the time. So how could you expect them to keep up to date on, on what all these things are? Um, you know, uh, a child might like to use an iPhone or an iPad or, or, or something, but actually not thinking about who are the people who have developed them or actually drew those characters or actually paint you know pulled them together made the stories or wrote, wrote those stories or wrote the text for it and all of that so bringing a lot of that to life was was what was different i would say with us and which is how we've gotten traction and now um we have kids as young as five joining our lesson plans and all the way up to teenage years so if um, if schools are a, a challenge, if that traditional approach, this is where kids go to, to become educated, if that's not really working for you um, or, or needs to go through that big change, what are the other channels and where are the other places that you're spending time to, to reach young women? Well, we are going to all the schools. I mean, we've rebadged, um, we market the lessons as Tech Weekend so that, you know, it's inclusive. It talks about kind of everyone being involved. And what we've asked now is for our member organizations, we've developed a Tech Weekend Champions program so that you can actually get trained up on how to deliver a lesson, get your DBS checks through STEM learning, become a STEM learning ambassador, and go into any of your local schools to deliver it as well. 
So uh, as part of, to support, I would say the, the school systems um, in, in terms of reaching out the kid, to kids. Um, of course, we also have all our lesson plans that are free and available on our website online. And that's actually where, where we've uh, found, where, where I think, was it over 25 countries in the first six months, people from 25 just started tuning in to our lessons because they just hadn't seen anything like it. And even though we're very much still focused on the UK and the UK schools, um, you know, it, it, it's gone. And, and now we're kind of in the early stages of now shaping up, um, shaping how many, you know, what are the areas we want to target? Where do we want to focus in on? Um, we definitely want to focus on the schools that are underprivileged, but we know that a lot of them don't have tech in the school as well, the ones that are underfunded um, and, and maybe in more marginalized communities, so to speak. Um, and what we've developed are these low tech test lessons. And a lot of it is about enabling the school. So teaching the teachers and giving them lesson plans that are low tech or no tech to still be able to give the lesson plans. So we have a low tech, a medium tech and a high tech kind of lesson plans that are also available for free for any teacher to kind of come. And we are kind of aiming for educators around the system all over um, is what we're focused on. And what we find is that a lot of our member organizations, including NatWest, who are strategic sponsors of Tech Chican, um, uh, you know, NatWest is, has a load of programs that are in um, probably something like 80% of the schools across the UK <laughs> and, and reach quite a number of students. So using a lot of those networks as well, as well as our own staff who are, who are open for volunteering to actually go into the schools and deliver lessons themselves. We're really interested, actually, and I think we should share some of these details with our, our listeners. So we will put them in the, the show notes and maybe maybe highlight them in a better way. But I think one of the things I've struggled with is um, is this sort of uh, idea that, that digital transformation, all of these things to big organisations can be quite, quite frightening. Well, they're sold in a frightening way. They're sold in a it's more about um, risk and, and, and changing to keep up than it is about excitement. And I think putting that excitement in to people's purview as a, as a, as a, as a child, I can think of all of the, the, the kids in my 10-year-old's class, for example, who would absolutely love to have that. And they don't have that in the current curriculum. They don't have that at that age. Yet they're only really four or five years away. My eldest, who's 13, is only a couple of years from actually making the choices in his subjects that are going to um, uh, be the focus for, for his, his his future, and he's not he's not at thirteen in that place yet to to understand what might be available to him. So I think it's it's the urgency of it to my mind is brought into sharper relief because I have kids of that age who yep. probably aren't thinking of this stuff in 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 the same way as you're painting it. So it's really really important that we get that right. I think for Zoe and I running businesses, the businesses that we run and being those influential voices within our networks as well, that there's a job for us to, to, to do here as well, hopefully, alongside you. Thousand percent, absolutely. So being able to spread the word, getting people to get involved, and also to to be perfectly honest, I've watched every single one of the lessons because I, I am <laughs> obviously as, as part of Texture. And I've learned something from every lesson and I am a technologist uh, as well. So, so that's what I would say, you know, I didn't know that you, um, that, you know, scientists look at penguin poo from space in order to track patterns and like, you know, all, all these random 
you know, facts and things that you don't realize. But if you have an interest in animals or natural sciences and things, actually realizing that tech is what will enable you to be able to do what you love. I think it's so brilliant the work that you're doing there because it's frightening how these stereotypes really start to take hold very early on. So my uh, daughter says she's she's nine, she loves tech, she loves maths. But the other day she said to me, mummy, can you only run a tech company if you're a man? Because she's looking at people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. So as soon as she said that, I went out and bought um, the Ada Lovelace book. It's one of the Rebel Girls <laughs> series. And we've just talked so much about it. We're reading it together. We just finished it last night. She absolutely loves it. And we just talked about women in tech and how, you know, you could do it and growing your skills. And I can see all these lights going on in her head where she's thinking, yeah, I, I can do this thing and I am the future so the fact that you're giving um, young people that really clear pathway to success and showing them what's possible is brilliant and this is very personal for me as well so I grew up you know in terms of my story I grew up in a um, non-English speaking household in New York City um, and with not a lot of money but my mother I remember from a very young age always said you know computers will take over the world you need to understand that so while she was working a garment factory I was in the coding class next door that she signed me up for which was her version of childcare, I think at the time and like and, and so I started, you know, and I was um, building my own websites before there were even more websites. I remember when they were just like a bunch of links and you would have to download a photo to look at it. All, all these kinds of things um, from a very young age. I was always very um, good at math. I went to the top math and science school in New York. And I ended up being an accountant. probably <laughs> what I studied. Because <laughs> I was good at math. And why would I go into computer science? Because I don't see any women there. In fact, it was, um, uh, my brother would kill me for saying this, but he was the one who ended up being a computer engineer. And to be perfectly honest, his maths are very um, lackluster. And, <laughs> and he struggled a lot in his studies. And he actually ended up going to night school to be a chef. And, he's, he, and he cooks the phenomenal food. So like, um, so, so he definitely, he's now a real estate agent. Um, and he, he, he found a long way into kind of like what he, he should have been doing from the beginning. And actually for me, uh, I was an accountant and I first joined the bank 13 years ago um, as a finance director, looking after a real estate book and looking after structured finance and all these other kind of really technical books. And um, the light bulb moment went on and I made a career change. I, I, I'm a career switcher myself. I moved into digital, I started running digital teams. And this was back when our digital team was, there were only like 20 people on there. And now there's thousands in that same team that I left. And, um, and I just remember feeling like everything fell into place. And even my friends told me, they're like, oh, you're finally doing a job that suits you. And I was like, what does that mean? I spent my whole life as an accountant and a really good one at that, I'd like to say. Uh, they were like, no, 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 this is just, this, this is what you, this is you. <laughs> this is what you and your personality and the type of thing. And I just absolutely loved it. You know, I took to digital like um, so quickly. And I just remember, you know, when you feel like everything has fallen into place and then you're doing what you're meant to be doing. I think that's how I felt uh, when, I, when I finally got into a tech job that I probably should have been doing my entire career. But 
I have many interests in many things. So, so, so I am not regretful at all of the background. However, I would, the reason we started TechSheCan and the reason it's so important to me is because I want to find all those little ladies out there who maybe also from that same background and have that same ability, but because they don't see anyone else doing it, no one's opened their eyes to it. They all end up being accountants or humanities or, or God knows what else, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you're, the, you're the literal, you're the literal representation of that Harvard Business Review article from 2013, which was called "Accountants <laughs> Will Save the World," and it's regularly uh, sort of brought out when in big accountancy firms. That article is regularly uh, uh, sort of wheeled out as an example of, yeah, we're you know we will change things, or well, you could have changed things um, one accountant at a time, I guess. Well, maybe it takes an accountant to leave. you also mentioned that your um your your brother trained as a chef and and that leads us neatly into a, a point that we wanted to talk about uh your role as a as a food blogger um and the 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 changes that you've seen in in that um in in that industry over over the over the years yes so um so I've always been a foodie I love food I grew up eating food and actually for me food is home like doesn't matter where in the world you are if you're with your family and you're eating the food that you love or that you grew up with your home uh, is kind of how I see it and when I first moved to London um so my parents my grandparents are from China but my parents were born and raised in Burma and I was born and raised in New York and I grew up eating a lot of Chinese food but also a lot of Burmese food and when I moved to London I realized there was no, there was very little Burmese food available and I was craving a lot of those flavors. So I was on the phone with my mom literally every week asking her for recipes, you know? And of course in classic old Asian woman fashion, like there's no real recipe. Just like, ah, a bowl of this, a dash of this. Yeah, just until it looks right. I was like, what do you mean it looks right? Like, (laughs) how do I know it looks right? And it's like, you know, continually refining it over time. And then um, and then I was attending all these kind of supper clubs, uh, I would say, e- events. And that's where kind of chefs who don't have restaurants decide to do pop-ups and, and small events. And someone, one of the, the ladies told me, you know what, you have a really good palate. And actually, you know, why don't you do your own supper club? And I was like, who would come to mind? So... So I started, it was really small. It was just 10 people in my home. Uh, my husband was a waiter. He wasn't happy about it, but he did it. Uh, and, then, and then like, and it just grew arms and legs like overnight. And then all of a sudden I was feeding 50 people. I had to go to restaurants or book spaces that were big enough to house the demand. I had to have sous chefs and, and all these things. And, um, and then uh, somewhere along the way, then BBC called. And I remember thinking it was a spam call. I was like, no way, you are not the BBC. And they're like, no, no, we are. We saw you on Instagram and we'd really like to feature you on this show. And I was like, really? And then, and then so anyway, so, so uh, and that, that's what happened. And then I, um, I ended up, uh, and now it's on Netflix. So do watch Burmese Kitchen by Wincy uh, on Netflix. Um, now, what has happened in the food industry, I, I think the pandemic has been really um, hard, I think, for a lot of um, people. And what I think people need to understand is a lot of people go into opening restaurants out of either need or desire and passion. And they're really good. They want to share the food that they know 
or they, you know, they really just need to make some money. And that's the only thing that they um, can think of. Uh, and oftentimes there are low barriers into entry in terms of creating a food business, which is good. However, I think the pandemic has shown that actually bricks and mortar isn't good enough anymore. You know, a bricks and mortar business is one only is one that will um, will be unable to grow. Everything's changed. People's moving patterns have changed. People's living patterns have changed and eating patterns have changed. You know, if you were part of the pandemic and you weren't doing something like Deliveroo or you weren't doing something like Dish Patch or, or one of those delivery, food delivery meal kits, etc., you literally would almost have no revenue. And coupled with now where we have a lack of immigration into the UK and a lack of hospitality staff, hospitality salaries are going through the roof. I, I saw adverts for uh, um, assistant restaurant managers that are higher than what a qualified accountant gets paid coming out <laughs> after qualifications. And that's, you know, that's the reality of it. And, and so it, it's become something that actually is quite difficult to hire as, as well as tech. So the ones who have survived, the ones who have done well, are those who embrace this upfront. We're able to be um, agile, dare I say it, <laughs> to you. And actually change how they operate and actually be able to think how wider and bigger of people who have really embraced social media as marketing mechanism, um, being able to look at different ways of delivery, of getting food to people outside of your immediate local space, because that's what it used to be. You were, if you started a restaurant, you were a local mom and pop shop or you're a local shop and you would cater to your neighborhood, you know, now your neighborhood is no longer either it's changed or it's not good enough or it doesn't provide enough revenue for you to feed those salaries, those high salaries that you have to pay. So therefore, you need to change your operating model and actually really think about that to succeed. And also, I mean, uh, don't get me started in terms of tech for food because there's there's loads of things going on in the NFT market, etc. Crazy things that you can buy NFTs for food now. So <laughs> or special passes for restaurants. Um, and drinks and all, all those things. So I think it's an industry that's revolutionized. It's also an industry that has a tremendous lack of diversity in it. It's uh, one of those uh, odd areas um, that need a lot more. So I, I think I was lucky enough to um, have a food business on the side rather than as my main source of income, I would say, during, during this time. So being able to pivot and change how you built your business and how you look at it is critically important. No, I think it's absolutely right. And I, there's some real success stories, even locally here, that, that to, one, one business down in, uh, I live in Hemel Hempstead, one business in our old town here that pivoted from a barber's into a um, putting uh, fruit and veg outside because they, didn't, they couldn't cut any hair. So they had fruit and veg on, on trestle tables outside. And now it's a full-blown urban grocers, um, which has a coffee shop and cakes and all sorts of different things. And it's just grown and grown and grown in reputation. That's just a very, very small example of somebody that, that saw an opportunity, but probably out of desperation. You know, we can't do anything else. We can, though, sell some fruit and vegetables out, out the front of the shop that we're paying rent for. And that's how it starts. So thank you. That's a, a really nice um, way to end. That was amazing. Thank you, Wincy. We've talked about digital skills. We've talked about inclusion. We've talked about 
changing careers and what the future of the workforce looks like and of course the amazing work that you're doing at Tech She Can and we've also talked about some fantastic food and I now feel really hungry so that's a nice reason for me to go and get a snack so thank you so much for a fantastic conversation today wonderful so nice to be here and uh, to speak with you thank you thank you Wincy thank you so much to Wincy for joining us on Starts at the Top we hope to be back next week with a season finale so stay tuned as usual please leave us your feedback if you use a podcast app where you can rate and review please do so and you can share your plans ideas or questions with us on twitter we're at starts at the top one and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com and we'll hopefully see you next week see you next week